the early in-person voting is certainly geared to people who can't necessarily come out to vote easily on, on a Tuesday. Um, and so what we have seen is certainly in the states that have had it, a demographic on those early voting days that isn't necessarily representative of the overall electorate. It happens to be more people of color, uh, more women. Uh, younger voters are often using early in-person voting. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy in the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Talking about early voting today, guys, and uh, joining us is Dan Smith, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Florida, but he is uh, born and raised in central Pennsylvania, as you'll hear him talk about during the interview. But uh, we're really lucky to have Dan with us. He's one of the country's leading experts on on all things elections and and uh, really smart. It was, was a really great conversation to have with him. Uh, I thought that uh, it might be useful today to uh, take a little step back and think about how it is that individual voters come to make the decision to participate in politics or not, in particular to participate by voting, And how it is that early voting and other sorts of voting laws and regulations that states might uh, might pass affect that decision. Thinking about the question is a matter of self-interest. There really isn't a very good reason, is there? I mean, you're good reason to vote. To vote, right? You you uh, you're one of how many? The idea that you are going to impact it in terms of your own behavior is just not very likely. You know that that's a really good point, and one I I think we'll come back around to as well. But uh, because you're right, I mean. People do consider, will my vote make a difference? It's one factor that they consider, Mm -hmm. will my vote make a difference? And under some ways of thinking about it, probably won't. Because few elections are decided by one or two votes. On the other hand, some are. So you just never know. It's not out of the question. So it's not out of the question. Especially lately. But I think the key factor to consider, especially in terms of the kinds of laws and rules that states establish, like early voting is that like anything else in life, there are costs to getting out to vote. I think that's, I mean, it go, that goes back to the idea of self-interest. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have to delay my dinner, delay turning on whatever jeopardy, because I'm going to go vote after work. Sure, right? I mean, those are real costs. If you were going to go participate in the uh, Iowa caucuses and you have a you yeah. know, young child, you have to count, uh, factor in the cost of hiring a babysitter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if you have an hourly job, you may have to factor in the cost of losing an hour or two of yeah. work. For the voter, um, I think that this issue of self-interest is is largely you know correct. But I also think that for a lot of people, it's not about you know, is this how is this going to impact my life? But it's also just a matter of this is what you do. Right. Voting is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is there are for many people this strongly held sense that this is what you do. Right. When you live in a democracy. Right. And that doesn't actually calculate into this sort of decision making in quite the same way. No, I, th- I think that's right. Because it suggests that somebody will come out to vote even if they think their vote's not really going to matter. Mm-hmm. Even if they think they get no particular benefit, even if it imposes a, a large cost. Right because they are so committed to the act of voting. Right. So there is this sense of, of duty, right, mm-hmm. that this is part of what you do as, as, a, as a citizen. Um, but it's also, I think, you know, um, I was trying to, <laughs> trying to remember. It, 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 is, it is a function of duty for 
some people's conception of what it means to be a citizen. Uh, yeah. But and there's been really interesting work done on people's notions of citizenship over the, you know, uh, younger people and older people. And one of the findings there actually is that younger people think about citizenship differently. Yes. And that's our fault. And that's our generation's fault. This may not be a, be a component of what they necessarily consider to be important. So this is actually a good segue into Dan's work. Uh, He has, as recently with some colleagues, um, looked at an initiative in Florida in 2018 to increase access to early voting for college students. So there were eight colleges, I believe, in in Florida that opened up access, put voting centers in their, their student union buildings. A week and a half or two weeks or so before, and issue, before big election issues with day. parking. Yeah, right? oh yeah. Parking on campus is always a problem. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, we'll hear Dan go into all this in in much more detail uh, about some of his work with college students and about early voting in general and what changes we might see uh, heading into November's election. So here is my interview with Dan Smith. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Dan Smith. Dan, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Always great to get back to State College. So we are going to talk about early voting today, or, or at least start our, our conversation there. And I think I'd like to start this discussion the same way that we did our episode on open primaries, which we did a couple of weeks ago, which is by admitting a little bit of my own ignorance. Um, I've lived in Pennsylvania my entire voting life. And much like open primaries, early voting isn't something that we really have here. So Uh, For my benefit and maybe for some other listeners out there, can you tell us exactly what it means, how it works, all those kind of things? Yeah. I mean, your ignorance is not uh, misplaced because if you're not exposed to something, you generally think that's the way it it all is across the country. Um, There are a lot of different definitions of early voting. The one that Pennsylvania still does not have and uh, about a dozen states don't have any form of this is allowing voters to come in before Election Day to some type of polling location. Uh, It can be at the county level, multiple locations. It might just be the county seat. But it allows you to come in. You don't have to request an absentee ballot. And you prove your identity one way or the other and are able to vote a regular ballot. The ballot looks just like a ballot you would do on election day in your own local precinct. Those windows might be as much as a month before election day. Uh, So we actually have early voting that's going on even before the Iowa caucuses in some states, even though we don't really talk about it. In Florida, for instance, it's a two-week period. And about 40 percent of voters in Florida actually vote before Election Day in person, voting a paper ballot just like they would on Election Day. Pennsylvania doesn't have it. Pennsylvania has a form of early voting that is very widespread across the country, although Pennsylvania is late to the game with respect to no-excuse absentee ballots. And no-excuse absentee ballots um, are essentially what it sounds like. You don't have to have an excuse not to be around on Election Day in order to be able to request either online or by mail or in person a ballot that you can then later mail in. Absentee ballots are very popular, uh, certainly traditionally among people who are more elderly, Pennsylvania has had to have an excuse until just the last election cycle. And as a result, very few people had the excuse in order to get an absentee ballot. Again, other states, not only is it a third, some states like Oregon and Washington and now Colorado, all of their 
voting on election day now takes place before election day in that you are mailed an automatic absentee ballot and you are able to return it in person or by mail. So what what is it? Is, is Are there any patterns to what drives some of these changes to take place across states? That's a really good question. Um, it's, it could be just the culture that you have the the idea that let's make voting easier and we're going to see about making it more convenient for voters so they don't have to come on that first Tuesday after the first Monday in November and extend the absentee ballot uh, or make it an all-mail ballot election like those states that I mentioned. Others, there's certainly a political game going on, uh, and it's often on partisan lines where Democrats generally want to expand the electorate, make it more easy to vote. Uh, One way to do that is to give people more opportunities to turn out to vote, either in person or by getting an absentee ballot and and mailing it in. We've seen efforts to curtail this. Uh, So certainly there's been efforts successful in North Carolina and Ohio and in Florida. Uh, They've been challenged through the federal courts about cutting back on these efforts, sometimes bipartisan, because the the demographics of those who take advantage, especially of early in-person voting, doesn't necessarily help Republicans. And so we've seen these efforts uh, to get rid of the final Sunday of early voting, the souls to the polls, as it's uh, often uh, known, because African-Americans in Florida or in Ohio or North Carolina were disproportionately using that. So the Republican legislature um, wanted to curtail it. And Pennsylvania is a good example of saying, well, why do we have to have early in-person voting on Sundays? Uh, we have it for two weeks. Pennsylvania doesn't even have it. So how are we possibly stripping people of their voting rights when other states like Pennsylvania aren't giving this option at all? Yeah. Let's let's talk more about the kind of demographics of it all. So you just started to, to touch on it there. What do we know about the people who show up to vote early in person? Yeah. So the early in person voting is certainly geared to people who can't necessarily come out to vote easily on on a Tuesday. And so what we have seen is certainly in the states that have had it, a demographic on those early voting days that isn't necessarily representative of the overall electorate. It happens to be more people of color, more women. Younger voters are often using early in-person voting. Now, there's a lot of differences. Uh, Absentee voting, if you want to think about that as a convenience voting, has typically been among older people, whiter people, more partisans, people who have already made up their decision on how to vote, they don't need to wait for an 11th hour surprise. They're going to vote a Republican or Democratic ticket. And so we've, we've seen that pretty persistent. The early voting is the one where certainly in Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, states that have had fairly extensive early in-person voting, disproportionately uh, African-Americans, more so than uh, Hispanics, are using early in-person voting. And you are at the the University of Florida, and you've uh, just recently done some research about an effort in 2018 that was focused around college students, a demographic that does not typically have a very high voter turnout rate overall. Is that right? Correct. And certainly in midterm elections and local elections, uh, we see a huge drop off in terms of younger voting not participating like they would in a presidential election relative to other populations. Yeah, so this was an interesting uh, piece of litigation. Um, Florida has this two weeks of early in-person voting. The Secretary of State in 2014 made an advisory opinion when actually Alachua County, where the University of Florida is located, wanted to offer early in-person voting at the rights union, the campus union at the University of Florida. And the state secretary of state said, you can't do that. Um, You can't have early in-person voting 
on a college campus because even though it's a public facility, this doesn't constitute a community center. It wasn't challenged legally. It was set in place. And it wasn't until 2018 in the spring where a group led by the League of Women Voters, the Andrew Goodman Foundation, sued in federal court saying this is a violation of not only the 14th Amendment and due process, it's also a violation of the 26th Amendment and discriminating against young people who disproportionately congregate on college campuses. Uh, After all, we had early voting locations in uh, retirement communities where there are no young people. It's all older folks, and they can come down to their lobby and and cast an early in-person vote any time before Election Day. They challenged this. I happened to be one of the experts uh, that provided evidence in that successful lawsuit in federal court. And the Secretary of State and the supervisors that were named relented. Eight of the supervisors of elections, we have 67 counties, uh, decided to work with campus uh, administrators to create locations on college campus. And the Andrew Goodman Foundation, League of Women Voters, were very thrilled when over 50,000 people voted in these eight locations. That's a lot of folks. And I did some quick and dirty analysis for the Andrew Goodman Foundation afterwards and found that, not surprising, most of the people who voted there were younger people. That's all well and good. And as a policy victory, it was a very strong one. As a political scientist, it raises a whole host of questions primarily would these people have voted anyway? And so that's something as a scholar, I kind of take a step back more dispassionately, uh, more analytically, try to figure out a research design that can tease out whether or not this actually had the impact that many of the advocates thought it would have. What do we know about, you know, did did the students who voted early, like, did would they have voted anyway? It's a really tricky question. In many ways, you can think about this as... Uh, an experimental design in which certain people get a treatment and other people are in the control population. And unfortunately, I don't have the ability to get through IRB to, um, <laughs> you know, through through the scientific review process uh, through the university to randomly assign people that they have access to an early voting location or not. And so I have to rely on administrative data and what's actually happened. And so in that regard, we don't really have a, a randomized Um, assignment of people who have access and availability of these early voting locations. So you got to think ways to try to figure out confounds of what would it look like if for the people who um, would be in a similar situation but didn't get that treatment. And so the way that my co-author, Henrietta Shino, who's a former student of mine, got her PhD at the University of Florida, is now at the University of North Florida, and I conceptualized this was let's look at Using the voter file, I know people's age. I know how long they've been registered. I know where they registered and uh, whether they're still registered in the same county. I know their race. I know their political party. And basically be able to say, let's look at those people who were in the same county in 2016, who were in the same county in the same location in 2018. Let's look to see whether they voted or not in 2016. And let's see what their pattern was in 2018. Were the voters who didn't turn out in 2016, a presidential election, uh, likely to turn out to vote now that they had exposure to this convenience of being very close to a college campus and being able to vote on any one of those days as opposed to having to go to another early voting location uh, where there's not public transportation or they don't have a private car to get 
get to. And then compare the younger folks in that county to the older folks. So looking at the difference in the difference. But then the treatment is really in that county as opposed to, say, all the surrounding counties. And looking at those counties and their younger population versus the older population uh, in the control group. And so it's not perfect. The surrounding counties of these eight counties are not exactly like it, almost by definition, if you think about central Pennsylvania and center county being a little different from the surrounding counties. Why? Because of Penn State University. But at the same time, we're able to hold constant a lot of other factors to be able to see whether or not these folks were more likely to turn out to vote than their compatriots, uh, also young, um, were in these other counties that didn't have that exposure to early in-person voting on campus. And does does early voting on college campuses happen in in, in in any other states? Well, there's been a lot of litigation and challenges. Uh, there was litigation in Texas, for instance, where they've had early in-person voting for a long time, and many universities allow it on college campuses. Um, you had Prairie View uh, College, which um, university, which is a historically black campus that wanted, the administrators wanted, and the Waller County supervisor election didn't want it on campus. Uh, There was some litigation and settlement to allow certain hours. We've seen the same type of thing in uh, North Carolina, where there was early person voting on some college campuses. Um, uh, Appalachian State was one, and then the the new county supervisor said, no, we're not going to allow it. Um, It's very contentious because We know the profile of younger voters. There is a partisan hue to them. They don't tend to turn out. And so certain factors and factions want it to be that way. And others would like to have the expanding of the electorate. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to ask, is this on the candidate's radar? I would think if I was Bernie Sanders, for example, I might want to see this happening in as many places as possible. It's fascinating on how many on the national level, um, both the Republican and Democrat, aren't thinking about these issues. It's happening more at the state and the local level where you're seeing this. I saw, for instance, um, for for the first time, a uh, candidate running for supervisor of election. We have partisan races for administering local elections in Florida, actually raised the point of wanting to have on-campus early voting at the local community college that didn't have it in 2018. Is that going to help her campaign? I don't know, but it certainly should energize some people uh, who are interested in making voting more accessible. Yeah, and it it seems like the the students responded well to this also. Absolutely. It was really interesting. Um, I happen to work as a poll worker uh, often, and I learn a tremendous amount just being in the trenches and working with uh, I was working with some really lovely women largely um, and I bring the median age down by about 30 years <laughs> um, but you know it was fascinating to see the excitement uh, where these students were first kind of curious about the opportunity and then you saw started to see the the drives of get out the vote efforts um, by different coalitions. University of Florida has a lot of Democrats as well as Republicans. And so it was utilized by both of the political parties at the local level. The students are very, um, very energized and organized relative to a lot of other universities. So I'm not surprised that we had the high turnout. And I can tell you that if the supervisor of election uh, wanted to eliminate this or the administration wanted to eliminate it, there would be a huge backlash. So thinking about um, voter turnout overall, as we we look to November, I mean, I've seen estimates out there, 75, 
eighty percent. I mean, what do you what do you make of that given all of your your work in this this field? Well, I need to give a shout out to my colleague uh, Michael McDonald at the University of Florida, who runs a, a great website um, at Elect Project, and you know he's been tracking. He's 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 the official unofficial uh, turnout guy in the country. We don't have official turnout records at the federal level since it's all done uh, at the subnational level. He certainly doesn't think it's going to be 75%. He's been pegging it perhaps 68% of the registered voters. I think it's really going to hinge a lot on who the Democratic nominee is. The Democrats certainly have the never-Trumpers who are going to vote for a box of rocks over the incumbent. And they're going to come out regardless. But there are a lot of other folks who are not terribly excited about a potential Democratic candidate. And if you don't have that excitement, that enthusiasm, uh, we know that it is going to play with respect to younger voters. Um, If they can't get behind the Democratic candidate, if President Trump does some things that are going to turn off some moderate Republicans uh, who – really don't like what he's doing, but they're going to hold their nose and and, uh, come out anyway. He could still turn them off. They're not going to come out and vote for the Democrat uh, nominee. You have the folks who came out of the woodwork in 2016 for Trump. Are they going to come out in full force again? All these things are kind of unknowns right now. It's so far out, uh, even though we're finally in election uh, year. Uh, I don't know. I I think 68% is probably a little high, but uh, somewhere in the mid-60s seems fairly reasonable. A lot of it has to do, too, with the, the, the competition at the more subnational level. So if you think that your state is going to tip the electoral college one way or the other, are you going to be Michigan with uh, you know 10,000 votes basically deciding the, the presidential uh, election? You're probably more likely to turn out the vote than if you're uh, in a state where it's a clear Democratic or Republican nominee. And so I think there's a lot that plays at that subnational level that is going to lead to the overall turnout rate of the nation, much less in those individual states. Yeah, you know, we, we talked earlier before about some of the, the, the changes Pennsylvania is making. And, you know, given the, the, the high turnout, I mean, we can argue about whether it's 68 or 70 or, or, or some other number, but there's going to be a lot of people voting on, on the first Tuesday in November. Are, are there other states that are, are – or do you expect any other changes or, or adoptions of early voting to happen between now and November to try to ease some of those lines we might see on, on Election Day? I wouldn't be surprised if there are some more legal challenges. Is Pennsylvania going to adopt early in-person voting this cycle? No. But New York did uh, last election cycle, and they had some issues rolling it out. But I think it takes a a bit of time. Uh, But again, New York's not a battleground state. There's not going to be a lot of attention. There's not going to be a lot of money spent there um, in the presidential election. Uh, Turnout is going to be probably a lot lower uh, just because people on either side know that their vote is probably not going to be decisive. And there's a lot of literature suggesting that that's one of the things that drives people of whether or not at the margins are going to turn out to vote. Where we are going to see some more litigation is with respect to absentee ballots. Uh, Absentee ballots um, are very different than when you're voting in person. In Pennsylvania and in many other states, you come in, you verify who you are. Uh, You don't need to have a a voter ID if you've already uh, been a registered voter and have voted. Uh, It's only for those who have registered at the last uh, moment, especially online in most states. In those states where they have absentee ballots, it's up to local canvassing boards generally that are going to be deciding whether or not a signature matches what's on the voter registration. And we've seen litigation across uh, the states of, of challenging 
that very subjective uh, effort to determine whether or not this is actually the person voting. So I think we're going to probably see uh, some more litigation on that front. Other areas which we know lead to higher turnout are things like same day and uh, registration, uh, election day registration. Again, most states who have done that have already done so in the legislative cycle. Uh, But we know that if one of the major barriers to participation is registering. And if you have to register 15 days out or 29 days out um, and you're kind of at the, at the margins anyway, that is going to be a big barrier to overcome if, and, and one that you can't overcome if at the last minute you think, oh, maybe my vote will matter. Yeah. And and how many of, of these types of changes come about as a result of legal action, you know, someone challenging something in court as opposed to happening through a more regular legislative process? That's a great question. Um, some of my research with some colleagues have, have looked at the adoption of restrictive voter ID laws, for instance. And, and so we have to think about this on both sides. You're not going to have litigation unless there's some legislation in the first place. Uh, one of the things that is a driving factor is competition. It's, it's not enough to have Republican control of a legislature to have something such as a, a restrictive uh, photo ID law. States that are very much in the control of the Republican Party don't need it. There's no threat to their control. And so it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition in terms of adopting some of the more restrictions on the electoral process. You have to have the threat of of perhaps losing, whether it's a statewide election or individual lawmakers being challenged. And and so our research has really shown at both the state level as well as the individual legislator level that competition is, is the trigger on that. With respect to the litigation, the Democratic Party and a lot of the progressive allies are really not interested in going after restrictive laws in places where Democrats have no chance of winning. So it's not the flip side of Uh, The competition and the possibility of having a regime change from one party to the other or at the individual candidate level where you see the litigation. Uh, Litigation, uh, you're you're not going to see litigation in Wyoming or Montana or Idaho or, you know, places that Democrats have no chance of winning and taking over uh, the legislature or um, winning the, the presidential election. They're going to be focusing in the battleground states. And we're seeing an increase in litigation in places like Texas over voter ID and redistricting. In Arizona, a battle over absentee ballots and being able to, to vote a ballot outside of your precinct um, and having that, that transfer in illegally. These are the places where uh, Georgia, another mm-hmm. place where there's a lot of litigation going on in terms of uh, whether or not you have to have Um, proof of citizenship to register to vote or have to have an exact name match up with the Department of Motor Vehicles with your voter registration. Why? Because it's a battleground state. It's a changing demographic that is allowing Democrats to have a possibility of coming back after um, Republicans have been ruling for the last almost 30 years. So we've been talking mostly about early voting in general elections. But as you mentioned, it, it also happens in primaries, which have a more set kind of cadence that they follow. But there are also people voting early in, in states where the actual um, election hasn't happened yet. So how does that change the, the calculus or, or, or how candidates think about their primary strategies? Primaries give you a very different dynamic. It depends, first off, if it's a closed or open primary, and you've discussed that on previous shows. But it does allow folks who 
have the ability to advertise before the attention of a campaign in a staggered series of campaigns and elections like we have in the Democratic primary this presidential season to be able to get out there and saturate the airwaves. In Florida, um, New York, Pennsylvania, California, Michael Bloomberg is advertising. He was advertising during the Super Bowl. Um, and he was advertising in places where the other candidates still in the race for the Democratic nomination haven't even set up their campaign teams. It's so far out. They need to be worrying about Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada. And that's where they're putting their resources. And yet we have people voting in those other states. Absentee ballots have already gone out uh, to overseas voters in Florida 45 days before the primary. Um, And so as a result, you do have a change in the dynamic that allows uh, different candidates or groups to be able to push a uh, candidate uh, well before that election. We haven't studied that as political scientists, and I think it's a fascinating question, um, and it's a really smart strategy if you have the resources. Yeah, so maybe we'll have you back on to talk about that once uh, once you get that research Sounds completed. Sounds good. All right, Dan, well, thank you so much for the, the work you and your colleagues are doing to help us understand all this voting data and behavior that's spread across states and counties and municipalities. Um, really interesting. We'll, we'll link to, to your website and, and your work in our show notes. And thank you for joining us Jenna, today. Jenna, thanks so much. It's great what you're doing here at Penn State. It's great to be back in Happy Valley. And the Courtney Institute uh, is, is doing a terrific job getting Penn State on the map. Well, that was really interesting, and Dan is uh, quite authoritative on on these issues, so learned quite a bit there. I I do want to pick up on uh, something that came up in the interview, though, about early voting in primaries in particular. I mean, yeah, because this because that's really kind of um, an operative question right at this very moment. Yeah, because it's going on right now. I mean, they're already voting. In California, they've been voting in California for a couple of weeks. Uh, they're already voting in North Carolina. I'm not even sure when the North Carolina primary is scheduled to be held. So uh, I think I find this somewhat problematic because the, the no campaign. Right. There's nothing there. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there's no campaign. The primary process is designed to be sequential. Okay, we don't have a national primary system. It's very intentionally designed to be sequential. Which is to say what? Which is to say you start in very small states with only one at a time. Retail politics. With an emphasis on retail politics with the idea that somebody who's not well known can emerge Uh and then start to gain national attention, start to raise money. But it raises the prospect that somebody who doesn't have a huge amount of money can go in, focus on one state, do okay, start to pull in some money, and then they move on to the next. So so the argument is that these early states are not about delegates, but they're about momentum. And, and there are barely and, any delegates that, yeah, were, right. that were apportioned right. in New Hampshire or mm-hmm. well, more than probably more than in Iowa. But, but still, either state, tiny, there's still tiny amounts of delegates compared to the final, but they have disproportionate weight because they come up early in the system. Right. So what does this mean? That means that in California... People are already voting. There's no campaign in California with the exception of Michael Bloomberg, who is on the airwaves all the time because he's got all kinds of all money. All kinds of money. Now, there's nothing – this is not against the rules. He's playing with the rules he's got. Mm-hmm. But it means that people are voting. They may never even have heard of Amy Klobuchar or mm-hmm. Pete mm-hmm. Buttigieg, who have done okay in mm-hmm. both the New mm-hmm. Hampshire mm-hmm. and uh, Iowa caucus and primary because – 
you know, unless you pay a lot of attention to politics like we do, yeah. and like the listeners to our show probably do, you really may not have any idea who these people are or why they're well, running or what they're about. You're not turning your attention to it because it's not your turn yet, right? It's not a campaign. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if, if, if we think that the campaign is important in some way in terms of connecting voters with candidates, giving them the opportunity to make their case, giving them the opportunity to go head-to-head in debates and that type of thing. I'm not sure it really makes sense to have people voting well before any of that goes on. Well, your argument is that the reason for this early voting is to diminish the costs associated with voting, right? Yes. It's to make it easier for people. Yeah, but that and, doesn't mean it's cost-free to the process. Well, and I completely agree with that. And I think my argument would be that the cost is to um, not just the process or the ability to, to people to vote, but it's to the the uh, the civic value of this event. Um, and I know this is right, and that's all lost. Right. Yeah. We talked about this um, last week with election security with uh, uh, Bill Theobald from from Fulcrum. But it does seem to me that this is an argument for um, election holiday. Making oh, absolutely. Ex- yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, you know his big uh, pr- proponent of this is I, Bernie. Actually, I think that, is it Virginia just passed that? Um, they, the, they substituted like a, uh, in a former state holiday. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. For, for I think that's holiday. right. I think that's right. Yeah. There are some states or some nations that do it. South Korea does it. Uh, and, and I think Israel, too. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the voting holiday is the one that most incenses me because it seems obvious to me that... <laughs> Election Day should be a holiday, and we should celebrate our voting right. far more than some of the things we celebrate on. Uh, exactly, on and this is and, not and, and understand too how that impacts on costs. I'm, my <laughs> argument would be it 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 may or may not improve turnout, but that's not why you do it. You do it because you are honoring the election and the voting process as something that is worth a, a, a commitment on a national level. The counter argument, I think, to the idea that this is before the campaign uh, is that the people that vote early are the people that know for sure who it is that they're supporting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this suggests that there's nothing that could come up in the campaign that's going to persuade them. To switch to well, campaign. and campaigns like this Some because then like- they lock in that vote. The idea that you have this person locked in, they you know that they've already voted, and you can direct your attention to someone else. It's a very good situation for them. It, it, it allows them to um, use their resources more efficiently because right, they I know mean, that somebody has already voted. Having said this, I still actually think early voting for the most part is a good idea rather than a bad idea, but I, I don't think we should pretend it's cost-free. I, my argument would be that it's an effort to accommodate an unworkable, out-of-date system, and the system needs to be changed, not these accommodations to it. I like that. Better answer. In any case, um, once again, Janet Spinelli hit it out of the park. Very excellent interview. Thanks for that. Um, and uh, thank you all for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. This has been Democracy Works. Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, 
to graduating seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts focused on civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and view playlists on topics like immigration and impeachment that are curated from across member shows. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Ways and Means is an award-winning narrative podcast that explores bright ideas for improving human society. Ways and Means is hosted by journalist Emily Hanford, a senior correspondent for APM Reports. In the latest season, we focus on hot topics in the 2020 elections and issues in politics and civic life, like news deserts, reparations for black Americans, and what really keeps young voters from turning up at the polls. Ways and Means is produced by Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us online at waysandmeansshow.org.